I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is TCS, the Tech Central Show, brought to you by MTN Business. You know the drill by now. Subscribe at youtube.com slash techcentral if you haven't already. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to our daily newsletter at techcentral.co.za slash newsletter that goes out every morning at 5 a.m. with all the latest local and international tech news. Now, Dr. Bongani Mabaso is the newly appointed Chief Executive Officer of the State IT Agency, or CETA. Bongani, welcome. Thanks uh, for your time you, today. Um, how long have you been in the CETA role now? Two months on the dot. Two months. Yeah. And uh, how are you finding it so far? Uh, very challenging, uh, like drinking water out of a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lot, lot happening, a lot going on. Uh, but it's also you know, massive opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been poached from the private sector. You were at Correct. Standard Bank in a CIO role yes. uh, for a number of years. And before that, I think you were um, um, in a senior engineering role, if not mistaken, Correct. at Transnet. Yeah. Uh, what, what possessed you to, uh, to, to go from a lucrative career in banking to into the public sector where we know there's a lot of dysfunction? Yeah, yeah, craziness. Um, yeah, look, I still ask myself that question. Um, I think it's one of those things where I, I probably said no 30 times in my mind right. um, and to various people. Uh, but CETA used the headhunting agency to, to, to identify the right people. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the people they, they identified. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's just one of those things where you go, if not me, then who? Yeah. Um, I think we need to start to get you know, the right people, qualified people uh, in the right positions. Um, yeah, so although I said no 30 times, uh, eventually, I said yes, mm-hmm. uh, just because of the country call. Right, yeah. right. Your public duty, in yeah. a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I hope it doesn't give you too many uh, gray hairs. You're the first uh, permanently appointed CEO at CETA since Satuma Mohapi held the role. And that, he left the organization about five years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Why has it taken so long to find a permanent replacement for Dr. Mohapi? I wish I knew the answer. Um, I wish I knew the answer. I don't know. Okay. Um, I think it's, you know, CETA has undergone administration uh, and then it's had various people acting and the like. Yes, yes. Um, and then it's also had changes in minister as well. So I mm-hmm. think changes in, in, in the organization as well as changes in the department haven't helped. Yes. Uh, you know, in terms of stabilizing it. Uh, but we hope that now that I'm here, yeah. um, there's also a new minister in the department uh, that and hopefully they start to stabilize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it's another one. A very high turnover of ministers in the communications portfolio, Correct. Which, as you know, which which is, is problematic for the for the sector. So let's hope we see some stability now. I want to talk a bit, about, I want to go into obviously in some detail about CETA and what Correct. your plans are on the restructuring and some yes. of the announcements made by the previous ministers yes. and how, how those are playing out today. Sure. But before we get to all of that, let's talk a bit about you. Sure. Um, you've got a PhD uh, from the University of Pretoria in yes. machine ethics and computational morality. Wow. Yes. <laughs> um, why this particular field of inquiry? Uh, you, you, and you completed this PhD about five years ago now? No, no, no it's like three years ago. Three two, years two ago. to three years ago. But it was before the AI phenomenon that erupted last year with ChatGPT Correct. and all the rest of it. And suddenly Correct. machine ethics and all these, the topics around AI are, are suddenly top of mind. Correct. You, you, you produced this research uh, years ago now. Correct. Um, why this particular inquiry? Why this field? I think, I think yeah, the last year in AI has proven that this is a very important uh, topic. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think just last week, um, the CEO of, of Google DeepMind, uh, the CEO of um, um, OpenAI, uh, they actually signed a paper. It's like, it's like a 30, 30 word statement that just says. I saw that. 22 you, words. I yeah, think 22 words, something mm. like that. Mm. Um, you know, so you can see it's very topical. And the reason for me was just around making sure that human interest yeah. is protected as we advance AI. I'm pro AI, right? I love AI. That's why I went into the field. 
uh, because I'm an engineer. So maybe I can yeah. start, you know, taking a step back. So I started at the UCT. Uh, I did electrical and computer engineering. Uh, that was back in early early to mid 2000s. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, in fact, the computer science side of that degree, yeah. so it was a double major, was probably my favorite part of, of the whole thing. Um, so it, it never really left me, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to go more into that field. And so when I got the opportunity to do the PhD with uh, with UP, which yeah. they, they fully funded, by the way, okay, as uh, so it was a scholarship, nice. um, yeah, I just I couldn't I couldn't say no. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I had to take on the challenge. No, I know I'm asking a very unfair question here in, in asking you to give me the elevator pitch about your dissertation. <laughs> but what what were your conclusions? What did what did you focus on? Firstly, what was yeah. the specific area of focus? And yeah, what were the conclusions you reached? Correct. So so machine earth ethics is a is a very wild field, a wide field, right? Yep. Um, there's there's many sort of aspects to it. The one that I was looking at is, is called computational morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is building and embedding um, ethics into machines. Uh, so it's it's an interdisciplinary PhD uh, in philosophy and computer science. Okay. Uh, and the difficult part of it for me was I'd never done philosophy before, not at least to that level of detail. Sure. So I had to now start going into moral ethics, um, you know, and look at virtue ethics and uh, you know. Um, yeah, just all these, you know, classical moral theories that yeah. as an engineer, you would not be exposed to. Uh, so that was the challenging bit. Uh, and then how to then, you know, take these very abstract concepts in philosophy mm-hmm. and somehow crystallize them enough that you can connect them in, to concepts in computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty challenging. Um, so eventually I found a, um, an ethical theory called exemplarism. Uh, which is, you know, it's, exemplarism. Correct. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's around you know, framing um, your moral ethics around exemplars in society. So you look at various people that you admire and, and the theory says that you, you, you almost in a way imitate their traits. Okay. Uh, you know, how they do things, how they look at the world, uh, how they make moral judgment and the like. Let's, uh, let's not model this on Elon Musk if we can. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason for that is because I had to find a way to ground it some, you know, mm. in, 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 uh, for AI. Sure. Because for you and I, you can reason internally, right? You can understand, you know, abstract concepts like morality, mm-hmm. ethics and the like. But for a machine, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. So you had to model it against something else. So that's why I found that, that theory very useful for AI because I could say, well, here's 10 examples of people that we want to, you know, you to, mod, to be modeled against. So sure. if you think about doctors, you are the 10 best doctors. If you think about engineers, you are the 10 best engineers that are ethical and the like. Now you learn to do like them. Okay. You know, so you, you almost grounded indirectly as opposed to, you know, it understanding those concepts, you know, intrinsically, which is not possible sure. right now. Sure. Yeah. Well, you're now in charge of IT in the public sector. Yeah. Um, how do you see AI being used in government in this country? I think, it's, I think it, there's a massive opportunity. I'll, I'll speak about one, uh, AI and procurement. For me, I w- I'm looking forward to a time where procurement, uh, or at least the awarding of tenders, that whole process end-to-end, has no human intervention in the loop. Okay. Because for me, I think it takes away the corruption out of the system, right? Uh, yes, you might not be able to say uh, every single step of the chain does not have somebody looking at it for, yeah. for consistency. But yeah. if 90% of it, for, you know, for example would be automated. I think it would just be fast, uh, more secure, uh, make sure that the right people get the right um, you know, outcomes. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So I think uh, the procurement space uh, is, 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 is probably the next thing that's going to have massive transformation. Is that practical though? I mean, a lot of um, suppliers will be watching and listening to this interview yes. um, uh, and, and, and wondering, you know, 
if you were to apply these rules in, in tendering within CETA, how yeah. possible is it? I mean, AI is still, it still seems to be in fairly early days and, and we're looking at generative AI, not more advanced forms of AI yeah, at yeah. this stage. I mean, reinventing the tendering process and the procurement right. processes in CETA yeah. to, to factor in AI, what sort of um, timeframes are we looking at here? And is the technology uh, mature enough to do that sort of thing? I think that technology is mature enough to do it. I mean, if you think about the PFMA, it's just rules. Yeah. Right. And rules can be codified. Right. And as soon as you can codify something, I can have lots and lots of examples of of, of data points right around those uh, mm. those codes and and um, uh, and rules. Mm. Uh, so I think it's possible. Uh, I think it'll take a bit of effort, uh, <laughs> you know, to get the right amount of data uh, to to train an AI to do that. Uh, but I just think it's just around how you codify it. So mm. if you can go, this is how you input this uh, th- this these fields yeah. around your tender process. So. The company that you have, this is exactly how you enter it and, and, and the type of data that you require. So it has to be electronic, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to move away from the manual mm-hmm. sort of uh, processes that we use right now. Sure. Uh, so I think it is possible. Can you do it all in one go? Probably not. You might look at steps of the value chain and then start to automate that uh, and introduce AI. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, so, that, so the bid educa- adjudication process, you might start with that, for example, or at least the initial filtering, you might also start with that. Uh, and then over time cover the entire value chain. Mm. Um, but I think it's possible, mm-hmm. um, given what I've, you know, I've, my PhD was in AI, so I've, I've been exposed to what is the art of the possible in that field. Sure. And I think it's definitely there. Exciting stuff, yeah. exciting stuff. But we've got real, very real on the ground problems yes. as we stand at the moment. Correct. And, and one of those, as you alluded to, is corruption within the tendering and procurement Correct. processes around CETA and, and other uh, aspects of government procurement. Yes. Uh, you've been in the role for two months now. I've had conversations previously with Dr. Mohapi about yeah. uh, the, the corruption within the organization. In fact, there was a, you reminded me there was a detailed podcast about that, which we published about five or six years ago now, which is probably still on the site somewhere, right. if anyone wants to go and listen to that. But um, you've been in there for two months now. Uh, what have you found? Are you shocked? Are you pleasantly surprised? Um, what's, what's going right within CETA? What's going wrong within CETA? Yeah, let's start with what's going right. Uh, I think from a financial sustainability perspective, the, the organization is in, very, is in a very good space. Okay. And that's always a good sign uh, of a recovery. Uh, I think the team that's been there has done very, really well uh, to make sure that from a financial uh, perspective, the organization turns around. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's making its own money. Um, it doesn't depend on, on the state to bail it out in any way, shape or form. So it's, it's sustainable. Yeah. Uh, so that's one. I think two, there's a very large um, uh, customer base um, that depends on CETA, right, for the provision of services, besides what the Act says. Um, but, you know, I've met with probably, um, you know, 12 DGs and maybe three or five uh, CEOs of agencies and other uh, SOEs mm-hmm. um, that have services that they consume from CETA. And you can tell, you know, they'll complain for half an hour around service delivery issues and the like. Then I'll speak for 15 minutes and then I, it's, it, the conversation switches to how can we partner? How can we work together better okay. to improve uh, service delivery. So I think there's a very strong customer base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that customer base wants to work with us. Um, you know, what they're looking for is two things really, price and speed. Mm-hmm. Can we make sure that the price is fair and competitive? And can we make sure that our turnaround times are quicker? If you can fix those two things, um, that customer base will continue to grow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And is there any, I mean, there, there was some, I know over the years there's been some pushback against CETA by some elements within government saying sure. we'd rather do this ourselves. Yeah. CETA's too slow yeah. to, to, to get these products. We need to, to have our own tendering process, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Is there still some of that pushback you're seeing inside government? Absolutely. Is, is that entirely related to the speed at which CETA works? Correct. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. In fact, I think it's, it's probably intensified, to be honest. Okay. Uh, since I've joined, I've had, 
no less than 10 client escalations, I think. Right. Um, if, I'm, I'm sure there's maybe others that, are, that, are, that haven't come to me yet. Um, and it's always around those two things. Uh, so people question the CETA model, right? Which is the third thing they, no, they normally ask mm. because of those two first two things that are not working. So if price and speed were okay, no one would even think about the model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because those things are not there, everyone goes, I want an exemption. Right. Uh, but you also have to consider the flip side, right? You know, as an engineer, you want to consider the, the pros and cons. Um, so what happens when CETA isn't there? And I think we don't often spend enough time asking that question mm. uh, because when CETA isn't there, uh, issues of cybersecurity start to happen, as we've seen with some of our clients that have gone their own way. Um, and then, you know, a year or two later, you, you, re- you hear that they've been, uh, they've, they've been a victim of a cyber attack. Mm-hmm. And then they come back to CETA and say, look, can you help me close these gaps? Um, you know, they get explo- exploited by, you know, sometimes it does happen, private sector companies uh, that deliver substandard quality of mm. work, right? And because they're not IT experts themselves, they can't gauge that. You know, I can just put a very nice presentation, slick one, and then convince you as, you know, uh, in your sector, in health or in education, et cetera, to go, this is amazing. But there's no depth in terms of what, what is behind mm-hmm. there. And we've, we've certainly found that with some of our clients where we've had to go in and realize this is built on very old technology. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're dealing with a case like that right now. Um, I won't mention the client for, for privacy sure. reasons, but uh, very old technology and CETA is now having to rework that. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so there, there are also very bad things that happen mm-hmm. uh, you know, when CETA isn't there. I want to follow up on two things you just mentioned. The, the first is your clients. Um, yeah. You work with a range of government departments and at both national and provincial and local level. Is that right? Correct. Do you work with SOEs as well? Correct. You do? Okay. Yes. So it's, it's right across the board. Right across the board. Okay. The, 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 there's no limitation. Um, obviously, the SOEs and, and municipalities aren't um, obliged by the law, the CETA Act, to, mm. to work with us. But should know, they be? They're free to. No, I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Okay. Um, look, I think, I think in any case, CETA can't do everything. Uh, I think if you look, if you look where CETA uh, was started around 1999, 2000, somewhere there, um, and the rate of change in the technology sector, mm. right? I mean, the biggest technologies then were mainframe. Yeah, maybe uh, ERP systems and, and the like, and, and it was just the early days of the internet. Yes, um, you, you mentioned now around AI and the rate of change that's happened in the last year alone, right? Yeah, yeah. It's actually started way back in two thousand and nine, where we, we saw an inflection point where it started increasing exponentially. Mm. Uh, so the macroeconomic factors around the technology sector have just increased uh, exponentially. Mm-hmm. So you know your clients are now exposed to you know their smartphones. They, they see how that works. Uh, they look at YouTube videos, they go to conferences. And so they want things, mm. right, at, a, at, a, at an increasingly uh, fast rate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you look at CETA, you know, invariably, we, we, we're pretty fixed capacity, right? Yep. Uh, we can't scale up and down, you know, to match our client demand. And so I think there's a bit of a mismatch there. So I always mm-hmm. say that we can't do it on our own. Um, one of the things that we're looking at is almost waking up the private sector arm of CETA yeah. to go, how can we partner better proactively? Because right now, if you think about it, Duncan, the only time I engage the private sector besides mm. conferences is when there's a tender. But it's almost like a, it's an arranged marriage, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I match up the, 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 the partner with, uh, with the department only mm. when the tender is awarded. Mm. But it doesn't make any sense. Right now, you can trial an app on your phone, try it for a day or two and realize, I don't like it. Try another one for a day or two before you realize, okay, this is the one that I want, then you buy it. Yeah. How can we enable that for our clients? Mm. I think our clients are looking for more of that agility right. uh, in the system. So perhaps less focus on, on the procurement of the goods and services and more focus on providing services to 
your clients uh, being absolutely. holding their hands and helping them and advising them on what they should be doing and buying, etc. Correct, absolutely. Yeah. I think we need to look. I mean, I think the role of of a, of a state ICT procurer will always be there in some shape or form. But I think in a, in a sense, we need to you know elevate you know that that part where we are advising our clients around what's happening in the tech space, yeah. uh, you know, proactively. And then, in, you know, in parallel as well, you know, engaging the private sector proactively as well. Mm. Uh, I'm envisaging, envisaging a future where we can uh, proactively vet solutions in the private sector and put them in what I call a CETA marketplace okay. so that it's available. Yeah. So before a DG says, I want X, I can go, well, there's five of them that I've looked at. Mm. Which one would you like? Mm. You can trial them. You can look at them just like any marketplace would work. Mm. And then I wanted to ask about security, which you also touched on. Yes. And, and we know there have been some high-profile incidents involving yes. public sector entities and SOEs. I think Transnet was a particularly vicious ransomware mm. attack that happened, was it last year or the year before? Yeah, a couple of years ago. And it knocked them out for a, bit, a long period of time. I don't know if CETA was involved in that incident at all, um, but uh, just just broadly, security. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously a, a, a rising concern. Yeah. Um, I think there's a perception perhaps that government IT systems are not very well protected protected. Yeah. Um, how much of a threat is this to South Africa as a country? It's massive. In fact, there was a report that came out about a month ago uh, that showed that South Africa is, is one of the top five worst targeted countries or most targeted countries mm. in the world when it comes why to Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's just, you know, it's a number of factors. I think if, if I can focus on the, on the public sector, I can touch on the private sector as well because, sure. you know, they're, they're, not, they're not exempt from this either. But yeah. uh, to focus on the public sector... I think we just have ver various degrees of maturity in the technology uh, that we have, the mm -hmm. technology estate. Uh, it's fragmented. Uh, it uses various operating systems, uh, you know, various networking topologies right. and the like. So it's very difficult when things are varied uh, to then protect in a standardized way. So you, you then have to have very various ways of, of, of protecting the, those assets. Uh, and I just don't think we have enough coverage mm -hmm. uh, across the border, not just from a CETA perspective, but also the government GTOs, right? Mm -hmm. For them to understand their own environment and their own estates uh, to have that covered. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it is a massive issue. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that, you know, that for me was a bit of a shock anyway, is um, the fact that we don't have a, a chief information security officer at the ex level. Mm -hmm. So there is an individual that plays that role uh, at a lower level, but I think for me, that's a, that's a strategic role that should be there in Exco every single day because mm. we're dealing with ICT. Mm. Uh, you know, cybersecurity is a strategic function. It's not something that you can, you know, deal with, you know, when, it, when, the, when the Exco agenda item pops up, right? So, so that's one of the things that we, we want to fix, uh, looking to, you know, hiring a, a full-time CISO mm -hmm. uh, that can build the cybersecurity business um, and then ensure that we can partner well with the private sector as well with, as, as our pub public sector clients. Uh, to secure the state. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you become proactive on that? Do you go out to each government department and say, we'd like to do an audit of your systems to check that you're actually up to date, your software isn't vulnerable to attack, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, some, is that, is that practically possible? Yes, it is. So it's actually part of our, our performance, our APP this year. Okay. Uh, I think we, I think the number is a hundred. I, I might have to verify that our uh, government sure. department sites, uh, we want to go do exactly that and audit. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, to give you a score to go, you are here yeah. and you're supposed to be there and here are the steps you can take. And of course, with CETA, we can help you yeah. uh, with that if you, if you, if you work with us. Uh, that's the one. I think we're also upgrading, um, you know, our VPNs in our network across the board, okay. um, you know, to, to, to higher version to allow us to be much more proactive. Uh, there is a standard, I think it's called uh, the, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model, um, you know, something like that. I, remember, I can't remember the full abbreviation. Mm. 
uh, but we're targeting to be at level four, uh, which is a much more proactive uh, sort of state where you, you monitor cyber threats in real time and you can actually take some action in an automated way, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, we want to plan to be there by 2025. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, 2024, end of 2024. Uh, but right now, we just want to get a little bit closer to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I imagine you coming from the private sector and particularly coming from a banking environment yeah. where security <laughs> is the number one priority. Yeah. Um, it, it must be a bit of a shock to the system coming into, into an environment where perhaps, perhaps the security is not treated as seriously as it is would be in a bank. Correct, yeah. Look, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's not treated seriously. I just think it's not strategic enough. Okay. Um, you know, so so I think we've got the security operations, and we've got a we've got a, um, a security operations center. Um, but I think for me, cybersecurity is a strategic function. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because now the prevalence of AI, right? Because it touches everything. Uh, there's AI now in security, mm-hmm. and how you deployed that to, to do live threat detection, right? Um, you know, and, and and stopping some of those attacks uh, automatically. Okay. Um, you know, so I, I just don't think it's something that you can think about in a, on a part-time basis. It's something that you have to, you know, proliferate across your, your entire strategy. In as everything you do, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's change the subject a bit. I remember um, a previous Minister of Communications, Stella Ndebeni Abrams, um, put a caretaker administrator in charge at CETA um, while she worked on some sort of restructuring of its mandate. Uh, it was a big announcement at the time. Yeah. Uh, I think it affected uh, some other organizations as well. OSASA, the underserviced area yeah. agency, was also placed under some sort of administration. Um, and I never heard anything more about that after it happened. Um, did it all fall by the wayside uh, when the minister moved on to another portfolio? Yeah. What what happened with that restructuring and that administration that was happening? Sure. Um, and look, what was the background to it? Why did she do it? Yeah. Look, I don't I don't have enough history for why it was started then. Right. Uh, I don't think my my knowledge of CETA at that point was was as advanced as it is right now. Um, but we that 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 project is still going. Um, we're actually undergoing a CETA operating model review mm-hmm. uh, with the department, uh, so with the minister. To look at its positioning and and potentially changing the act, um, but okay. I don't I don't think that's the main uh, focus point. I think the focus point is around how do we remodel it so that we can answer those two points, uh, mm. those two questions that I asked earlier. How do we make sure that price is fair and competitive, and then the turnaround times are improved? That's the fundamental reason, mm-hmm. uh, and not just kind of doing it for 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 you know for its own sake. Um, so it, there is a project that we're doing right now. In fact, um, just in our board meeting yesterday, I, I presented the first. Um, you know, sort of view of that uh, operating model and what it looks like and how we can grow CETA and the like and, uh, you know, um, not just have a a public sector business, but also look at how we can partner more effectively uh, with the private sector. Um, So that's something that we're hoping to complete in this financial year, um, you know, uh, in conjunction with our new strategy and operating model. Okay. But this, this, I'm not sure what the name of the formal process is that the minister announced, but she she put the organization into some kind of Administration. I don't know. Yes, if it was in administration okay. for a while. Uh, it no longer is in. It's no longer in administration. Correct. Correct. Okay. So when did it come out of this administration? I assume probably more than a, a year ago, more because year the, ago, there yeah, was okay. a a um, uh, an acting. The CFO was acting yeah. um, for around eight months before I joined. Uh, so I'm assuming from you know that point in time, okay. it was out of administration. There was a new board that started in February 2022. Okay. Uh, so I think that's roughly the, around the time when he came out of administration. I see. Yeah. Okay. And, and the, the minister process, by then had moved on. Yeah, and the minister by then had moved on. I think uh, Minister Kumbuzo had, had come in. That's right. Uh, yeah. And now uh, Minister Mondli Ngugubele as well mm-hmm. uh, has come in as well. But um, the, the the process is just CETA operating model review. Yeah. Uh, CETA model review. That's really what it is. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
So we have a new minister. Um, I've, I've lost count how many communications yeah. we've ministers we've had since 1994. <laughs> I think this might be the 14th or 15th minister, uh, Monle Gungubela, as you mentioned. Yes. Um, now, he said in parliament a week or two ago, uh, he got up to do his um, budget speech vote in parliament. Yes. And uh, he, he got up and announced that CETA is going to build a broadband network with 6 billion rand to right. serve government departments. Um, I think there was a bit of surprise. There was no indication prior, certainly in in, in uh, amongst tech journalists, that right. this announcement was coming. Uh, did it come as a surprise to you? And um, why why CETA and not Centec or Broadband Infraco to do this yeah, project? Yeah, no. So, like, I think I think it was maybe the way it was announced. Uh, mm. But these are actually projects we're already running. Okay. Um, so, so we've got three big broadband projects that we're running. Uh, one in Gauteng with the with the Gauteng e government department, mm-hmm. um, and that's I think it's already in phase three. Uh, we're running another one in uh, in the Western Cape with the Western uh, Cape uh, government. Uh, that's in phase two now as well. Uh, so phase one has been completed and rolled out, mm-hmm. uh, and we're running another one um, that's more than halfway through in the Eastern Cape with the Eastern Cape government as well. Okay. Uh, both massive, uh, or all three massive broadband uh, projects that touch on schools, uh, rural areas, uh, you know, government departments, uh, you know, isolated sites, mm-hmm. uh, using various technologies as well. So not just fiber, uh, but where it's not possible uh, because of infrastructure reasons. Uh, leveraging some of some of the investments that telcos have made right. uh, to leverage LTE and the like. Okay, um, so they are already running, um, and um, I can I can safely say that uh, they're actually going. So this uh, isn't a new project that the minister announced. Not necessarily. I think I think what the minister was trying to emphasize is just more reporting on it mm. uh, and to create visibility around okay. these projects. So I don't think they've gotten as much consolidated media. Uh, coverage um, as perhaps they should have. I don't know. <laughs> and where, where does the six billion figure come from? Is that the amount of money that's been committed to building infrastructure? Correct. Okay. Correct. And yeah. So, so all three collectively uh, is, a, is, is around six billion. I mean, it's not exactly six billion, but it's right. very close to it. Yeah. So that's the investment that CETA is making. Is it, so is this coming off CETA's balance sheet? No, no. So our no. clients, I mean, our, through those clients, I mean, they are paying for it. Okay. Uh, it's not coming off of CETA's balance sheet. I see. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah. This is not some altruistic thing that CETA's no, doing. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's a collaboration between the Eastern Cape, uh, uh, you know, uh, provincial department, right. Western Cape government, and also uh, Houghton Department of EGov. So the provincial budgets are being The spent. provincial government. It's not CETA's money. Correct. Uh, okay. Correct. Okay. But if you remember our mandate, it's national and provincial. Uh, yes. So it's 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 well within our right to to yeah. be able to help them to deliver that. Yeah. Okay. And how are those projects going? They're going fairly well. I mean, I think, um, and I think maybe we need to report more on that. Uh, like I said, two phases are, are, have been completed uh, in uh, Gauteng Gov. Uh, we're in phase one right now, so just started in the Eastern Cape, so a mm-hmm. little bit behind the others. And then Western Cape has gone really well in the first phase, and going into the second phase now yeah. uh, as well to touch on more areas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What about skills? We know that there's a shortage of skills yes. in, in IT, as, as specifically in certain areas like security and, yes. and others. Um, and it, the private sector finds it challenging to find the, some of the skills it yes. needs, particularly in security. Um, yes. It must be equally, I mean, it must be doubly difficult yes. in the public sector <laughs> to get the skills you need. How much of a challenge is that for CETA? It's a, it's a massive challenge. And I, and I think, you know, our CEO at Sunnabank when I was at CIB, I used to say that any organization is about, you know, if you can do those two things well, you'll be successful. One is 
treat your clients right and make sure that you know you deliver to them mm. and then two treat your people right and make sure that uh, they have been and paid well and the like because mm. if they have been paid well they'll make sure your clients are you know are delivered to and taken care of and yep. the like um, but if you don't if you can't find the right people that are properly trained to be able to do that uh, it's got a knock-on effect on your clients mm. because you can't deliver you know quality work to to, mm. to your clients um, so it's been a massive challenge I must admit um, even at an exco level I'm you know I've, I've, we've tried now to Hire a CTO. I've had a three rounds of interviews with no results. Like really? we, can't, we can, yeah, we can identify an individual. Wow. Um, you know, people pull out of the process because they, you know, the perception of going to work in the public sector. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that's that's attractive. And maybe this podcast <laughs> uh, helps uh, some people reconsider that because we need the best people. Yeah, uh, I can tell you now, CTO needs the best of the best people to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we we you know it's sitting at such a fundamental, you know. Midpoint, I call it, in the ICT sector, where it's between the private private sector and the public sector, right? Mm. Because we we almost a facilitator of exchange of goods and services between the public and private sector, um, and increasingly we want to be an, a facilitator of the exchange of information as well mm. between the private and public sector. And so I think we can facilitate growth in this sector uh, in a massive way and, and start to export IP from this country to other countries. Mm. But for that to happen, people need to be willing to come and say, hey, I want to be part of that transformation, part of that change to grow the ICT sector mm-hmm. uh, and not just think the best jobs are in the uh, private sector. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, look, it took a lot of convincing for me as well to join CETA. So it's not a, I don't, I don't necessarily blame anyone for saying, for thinking twice. I think anyone should think about it twice. Um, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, uh, from what I'm saying, mm-hmm. people are, I, I sort of taking pause and going, yeah, yeah. maybe it is possible. You know, yeah. maybe it is possible to go work at CETA. I can be qualified, know what I'm talking about, and go work there and make a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about your plan for CETA, uh, your strategic yeah. plan. Uh, I mean, you've got a lot on your plate. Well, what yeah. are the what are your top priorities? Um, how do you, how do you fix the problems that you've identified, right. and then how do you measure that success and ensure that it's for the long term? And when you eventually move on, that right. The changes you've made don't just get swept under the carpet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a challenging question. Um, I've actually answered a little bit in what I was saying now, but I'll, have, I'll, yeah. I'll I'll come back to it. Um, I think the first thing is just to stabilize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of service delivery, um, we've got a massive backlog in our procurement system. Okay. Uh, you know, tenders that haven't been awarded for two years. I mean, that's that that type of stuff. Two is not, years. Yeah, two years. I mean, it's not acceptable. Yeah. Um, so we have to turn that around, and and we are working. Um, you know, with uh, with uh, with the executives to to si- to try and turn that situation around. I think right. that's very important. Uh, and then two, we're bringing in the role of COO, uh, and the role of COO will be focused solely on 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 delivery. So it's a new role. It's a new role. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be there in in the inception of CETA, mm-hmm. uh, but over time and different strategies, it 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 got moved out. Um, but I think for me, the impact of not, not having a COO is very visible. Mm. You know, the handoffs between various departments is, is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite typical for a client to phone and get told, well, actually, you know, you need to talk to this department and oh, not, okay. that, not that department, et cetera. We do have a very excellent client interface, I must add, in, in, our, in our national and regional consulting structure. Um, but but they are just looking at the client. They're the voice of the client. Once the order is signed, the delivery engine is to need to step up and deliver. And that's what the COO will be looking at mm-hmm. uh, full time. So they will eat, sleep, and drink client, making sure that any order, um, you know, whether it's stuck in application development, whether it's in the procurement space, mm-hmm. uh, or service management, doesn't matter, right? That it, they make sure that it goes through without mm-hmm. any delay in the in the system. Okay. Uh, and of course, identifying bottlenecks, uh, and then seeing what improved processes uh, and systems we can introduce, right, uh, to make sure that that goes, um, you know, quickly. So I think that's an imperative for us, um, you know, to improve that. 
Uh, so that's that's the first thing we are, we are going to be doing, just stabilize. The second thing that, are, that, that we're going to be doing is then looking at building an ecosystem around CETA that can mm-hmm. stimulate growth in the ICT sector. And maybe just to go into a little bit more detail around that, um, you know, we're quite proactive right now. You know, the rate of, you know, change of requests that are coming from our clients, uh, you know, are just way higher than uh, the capacity that we have. Uh, in fact, I think we have around a billion rand in, in orders that we, we never execute every year. Uh, you know, just but you never of, execute? Yeah, wow. uh, just because of that fixed capacity. Uh, and so for us, it's around how can we then partner more proactively with both our clients and the private sector yeah. um, in a much more ecosystem, uh, you know, sort of way so that we can, you know, um, you know, match up problems to solutions, uh, you know, in a much more seamless way. And this is talking to smart contracting, talking to marketplaces, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking to us, you know, looking at various trends within our client base, looking at trends in our supplier base. Um, and uh, and pre-vetting solutions mm-hmm. and making them available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's quite important so that you can allow our clients to you know to be able to try before they buy, um, you know to to be much more innovative, um, you know and allow CETA to just play its role, which is to facilitate uh, within bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always use the anecdote of of SARS uh, to go if you want to buy, buy your loaf of bread, you can go buy it at Spaza shop, you can buy it at uh, your local Woolies or Spa or wherever you want to buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at your receipt right at the bottom, it's going to say fifteen percent VAT Spa, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, without having to, you know, they don't tell you where to go buy, you mm-hmm. know, your, your bread. And, and I'm asking myself, what does that look like for CETA to mm-hmm. go allow that exchange to happen seamlessly in an enhanced and automated way? But when you look at the bottom, it says 15% CETA, which mm-hmm. is your cybersecurity, your hosting and the like. But you allow the functional things to happen in a much more quicker way mm-hmm. than, we, than we allow it right now. Mm-hmm. Does there need to be a change in culture at CETA? Is the organization geared to be a service delivery organization and if it does need to change its culture from that perspective how do you do that uh yes it does need to change its culture um there is a culture and and look i must admit one thing that i've been very impressed by is when i've engaged and not so much with the exco i think the exco you know you always get what an exco will give you Mm -hmm. but when you go to the levels lower down speak to the project managers the application development uh, guys, etc., and you hear the real issues, and they'll tell you for half an hour what all the issues are and how this has gone wrong and the like, you know. But after the half an hour, they give you an hour, an hour of solutions, right? right? You know, they tell you how to fix everything. So, so people have that, uh, you know, almost like latent uh, ability, mm-hmm. uh, you know, latent knowledge, but they're just afraid to to come forth with it because mm-hmm. of being suppressed, uh, you know, maybe a culture of fear, you know, just a toxic environment that maybe doesn't recognize uh, and promote, you know, uh, good ideas. So I think for me, one of the first things that we have to do is just free up the human spirit within CETA. Yeah. Uh, you know, bring back that creativity. And I think in a highly governed environment where corruption and state capture and all of these things are always there, mm-hmm. it's always a very fine balance. Uh, you know, to 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 try and do that. But we've we've just tried to do that by just you know being much more open. Um, you know, my office, for example, in the last uh, two months that I've that I've started has been. You know, almost a revolving door of people coming in and out because I want to learn from you and yeah. I want you to hear what I'm thinking as well. Uh, so you can take that back into the organization. Um, that's one. The second thing is just around client centricity. And I think this, we're probably going to need some formal, you know, engagement programs for, right from the top uh, in the organization all the way to, you know, the person that works, you know, at the desk mm-hmm. to, to, to entrench client centricity, not just in a, on a plaque on a wall. But in how we think, mm-hmm. how we how, how we do you drive that through the organization, though. I mean, it obviously needs to come from you and Correct. be driven down through the organization. But Correct. how do you go about doing that in an organization that's probably quite set in its ways and has it's been doing it the ways, same yeah. way for decades? You're coming in, you're saying, 
this culture needs a bit of a shake up. We need yes. to be more focused on our clients, etc. But yes. people are used to doing things in a certain way. How do yeah. you? I mean, it's almost it's it's un- change is uncomfortable for people. No, it's very and they tend to resist it. How do you go into an organization as the new guy yes. and say, guys, we haven't been doing it the quite the right way. Yes. This is how how we're going to do it now. Yeah. Um, how do you get people to start to think in that way? In that way, yeah. I think you do it by example. Um, I, I, I mean, I love people. I love engaging with people. Uh, you do it by example and you create believers. I mean, it, there's a theory that says you're, it only takes about 15% of people to believe something. Okay. And that will start to, you know, almost be a snowball effect across mm. the whole organization. So it's about targeting the right uh, people mm-hmm. and having almost pioneers uh, in the right spaces across the organization, which Absolutely. is why, I mean, one, one of the things that I said when I first joined is, you know, I'd hope to meet every single one of the employees. I know it's probably not physically possible, mm-hmm. but it's because you want to try and create those believers everywhere across the organization yeah. because they will carry that torch uh, going forward. So I always say it's, 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 it's by example, you know, so the example is you've, we've delivered to clients. Can we celebrate that team that has done that very well? Mm. Uh, the example is how I, I, I interact and, and with, with clients and employees right and hopefully that would be something that can mm-hmm. proliferate of course there's structured programs you can follow around that but ultimately it's, it's by example mm-hmm. um, that's that's how we hope to do it anyway last topic I want to chat to you about and I'm, I'm, yes. I apologize not the um, the most um, positive topic yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> it is a reality in South Africa right now and that's yeah. load shedding yes. um, you're an IT organization that services government must it must impact you quite severely um, what what has the impact of load shedding been on CETA and how are you mitigating it yeah um, I think our diesel costs have ballooned, um, something like 200%. I forget the, the exact figure, um, you know, since there's this latest bout of… That's la- to run data centers, your offices. To run data centers, switching centers for our networks, uh, our offices, various offices across the, the country. Um, so it's been a massive impact. Uh, I must say the team has done really well to make sure that, um, you know, we've got the right infrastructure to, to mitigate against load shedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenge now is then the, 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 the logistics around diesel making sure that it's filled up on time and all of that. And, yeah. and, and then, of course, you've got shortages, right? Because everybody wants diesel now, yeah. uh, you know, to be able to run their generators. So that's the one. Uh, but the team has been, you know, you know managed it fairly well. Um, the challenges, of course, is the last mile where your client is. Mm-hmm. Will they have the backups that, that's required? Mm-hmm. And often that's where things have failed, where people have said, oh, CETA is, is offline. But actually you know, the government side is offline because of load shedding and they don't have any backups. And so having to work with our clients to see how can we mitigate against that? Uh, when when can they bring their uh, backup solutions online and, and, you know, could we potentially help them in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's been what we've been doing. Uh, the second thing that we're doing as well is reviewing uh, our strategy around renewables. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so what does that look like? Um, you know, in, in the context of the country with uh, theft and vandalism and the like, it's not an easy topic. You one mm-hmm. would think that it's, you know, Bam, there's renewables and you're covered, but there's a, there's a lot of other factors one has to think about, um, you know, in this in the in the context of our country. But that's something that we're currently reviewing as an exco, uh, and we hope to start to implement some of those measures as well to supplement our, uh, you know, our diesel generators. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now the Reserve Bank. There was some news yesterday, yeah. the day before yesterday, that yeah. uh, that they are uh, working with the banks and um, other financial services institutions. Oh, I um, saw that. Yeah. In the event of a total blackout, Correct. which Eskom says is very remote, yeah. but possible, um, <laughs> and it seems a lot of industry sectors are actually starting to look at this now. Banks, obviously, a high yeah. priority area, but other industries as well are looking at disaster planning around yeah. a potential national blackout. If there is a national blackout, what does it mean for CETA? Is the uh, is the government going to be able to continue functioning? I think it's going to have a massive impact. I, mean, I think let's be honest. Um, 
we can probably function for a number of of days. Um, but I think at that point, if you have a blackout, I think you, you the impact starts to be much wider than just CETA mm. because your logistics chain will probably start to suffer. How do you, so get, you diesel? get diesel? Yeah, yeah how, mm-hmm. how do you get diesel on time to the right places and the like? Uh, look, we do have uh, mitigating factors in place, like making sure that our diesel is always at an 80% level and the like. Okay. Uh, but I think in, in, in the event of a total grid collapse, um, I think the people that have... Uh, implement have implemented their renewable strategy will probably fare far better uh, than those that just depend on diesel alone. Yes, um, you know. So I think that's why for for me one of the things that we we sort of uh, started to ask when I joined is what's our renewable strategy and where are we with that? Yeah. Uh, you know, and can we accelerate that right in our capex investment uh, plan, uh, which is what we're currently doing. Mm-hmm. So so I think yeah would be would function, uh, but would it be for more ten days? I mean, I highly doubt it without, you know, some severe impact. Yeah. We'd have to probably start looking at, you know, rationing to go, what do we focus on in the main centers to make sure they continue to run mm. uh, while others might might be able to suffer. Mm. Uh, so I think ramping up on that renewable strategy is is very key. You have a big job on your hands. I wish you luck. Dr. Bongani Mabaso is newly appointed Chief Executive of the State IT Agency. Thanks for speaking to Tech Central today. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.